Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. To another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. David, I have a question for you. If God didn't want all of his children playing with the devil, why does he let the devil have all the best parties? <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Dancing naked in the woods. <laughs> How can I mean, you beat that? Frog soup is pretty awesome. So. <laughs> well, frog legs. Yeah. Have you ever eaten frog before? I've not. Have you? I have. Was it tasty? Uh, yeah, it was good, actually. I think it was... Was it, it, was, was it, like, significantly better than other things, or just, you know... No, no, unique? no. It honestly literally did taste like chicken. <laughs> I had <laughs> okay, it in... Fair. I ate frog in Cambodia, oh. and it was like... Was it a big frog or a really little frog? No, no, no. It wasn't a huge frog, but it was like... Did you eat the whole frog or just the legs? Just the legs. But it was good. Yeah. Okay, do you eat the whole leg, or do you kind of, like, a chicken leg? You like get the Yeah, bone. well, you don't eat the bone. Right. <laughs> I guess they do have bones. Yeah. And so, but it was like a little crispy, but it was definitely moist and full of flavor. So it was delicious. <laughs> Back to my original question. Whence all the best parties then? <laughs> yeah, I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> or at least maybe more specifically to today's episode, why does he have all the best alleged parties? <laughs> yeah, why, why, why does it seem I've like, never seen why, these. <laughs> why is the devil blamed for all the fun? I like that at the beginning where he talks, uh, where Arthur Miller talks about how the communists were pretty puritanical, mm-hmm. but in America they were always kind of blamed for being a little pretty lecherous. Yeah, and like and that there was, Le- like, there leading was all the women lifestyle. were loose, right? And it's like, <laughs> why is this always the accusation that ideologies hurl at one another? Yes. Well, we will definitely get into that. We will. We will. (laughs) Yes, today we are doing another first here at Really True Fiction. We are doing our first play, although we didn't go watch the play to take notes for it. We read the script. Script. There you go. Yes, we are doing the 1953 play by Arthur Miller called The Crucible, which is a dramatic and artistically licensed historical fiction on the Salem witch trials. Now, I think in reality they were in the 1690s does that sound right i don't know we could look that up i believe they were in the late 17th century sometime you know they were like the third second or third generation after the mayflower yeah so. yeah obviously this is a pretty well known or and well documented historical event and arthur miller was writing at the time where the mccarthyism was at a what is at its peak the red scare the red scare it, yeah yes. and so he was using the social and psychological infirmities of the Salem witch trial as a parody and a consciousness-raising attempt at education on what was going on contemporarily for him and some of his associates in the 1950s in the United States. Also doing what the best artists do and finding something that is analogous with the present in order to make us reflect more on the actions we're taking in the present. 
That's such a good point because when you're embroiled in something, once you're in the middle of it, it's like all around you. It has a level of importance that I think makes it really hard to abstract from and think about rationally (laughs) as a lot of this would be during as it was the Red Scare. But to frame it in something that basically by that point everyone could realize was ridiculous and a black mark on the history of the United States, even though it wasn't the States yet, but certainly on the history of Salem and Massachusetts and the legal system there at the time to draw those parodies. I, I do I do think the educational power in that is almost second to none when it comes to critiquing your own society. Yeah, and we've talked about this before, but one of the great things that stories can do is they take they they go under the intellect and into the emotions. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly when you're trying to process these emotions you're like, wait a second, I've done something like this before, or mm-hmm. I, am I doing this right now? And it makes you rethink your present based on the emotions that that tale, that fiction, or that historical fiction in this case, have told. Yeah, and I mean, this is not a really long script. Like, we have the Penguin, yeah, we have the Penguin Classics Edition, and I'm pretty sure from when it actually starts to the end is like 140 pages and it's script so it's not full pages of yeah, writing this is, this is a for a regular reader i would say it's going to take you two hours maybe like it's not going to take you very long no and it's an extremely accessible story i think too like miller does not make it complicated there's about three or four hugely important themes in it and this is an interesting story for us to do i guess it just occurred to me because this is one of the f- well, I don't know this for a fact, but it strikes me as this is one of the only stories we've done that was explicitly done to give a moral warning. Yeah. I think, right? I don't think we've done anything that <laughs> was that explicit before. Yeah, yeah I, I think a lot of it has been good meditations. You know, I, I think of someone like Dickens when we did David Copperfield. There was like, there's definitely moral meditations going on in those stories, but this is a little bit more of a siren. Or a, a an emergency. This is the canary call. in the in the coal mine being yeah. like, uh, we're gonna die of poisonous gas. But it's it's almost it feels like it's a really fucking big canary <laughs> in a really dangerous coal mine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because reading this story, the psychological hangups that lead to the tragedies are ever present in the human personality. Yeah, this is not a this is not a This is not like a ancient thing. Oh, it happened in the past and it can't happen again. We're fine. <laughs> kind of thing, no, you know, like no. it's that's why I think it's such a it's such a gem of a story and such a perennially important one. Like I don't I don't know what the impression you got reading this again. I reading this I was like this needs to be in the high school curriculum. Like an English class curriculum. Grade 11. Grade 11 students can read The Crucible and understand it. And I think it would be so, it would be such a great tool for their growing minds to think about this kind of thing from a social psych- social psychological standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a traumatizing book. And like, I'm a big believer that people need to be, you know, have the evil of the world shoved in their face and shown to them so that they can be reminded. Yeah, yeah. That's why I a- agree. Uh, I, I was grateful to have my English professor of my first year of university make us read this book. And he was he's a great uh, English professor. His name is Vic Cavalli. Oh, and good job, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> he really uh, impressed on us the importance of this story. But even then, 
I don't think I had any comprehension. No, as no, a 20, no, no. Or sorry, just an 18-year-old. This is an interesting one, I think, because now that you've read this for the podcast, you've read it twice. Now, I would say, well, I read it really, really deeply in university. We had to do papers on it. Yeah, and right. Like, and my kind of capstone project for the class was on this as well. But this second time, I would, I think it's hit me a lot harder. You know what? I had the exact same feeling. I think I've read it twice now, too. And the first time, I would have only been maybe 23, 22, 23. And I think my guess would be that the reason that it hit both of us so hard this time is just, you know, like an extra almost decade of life experience, I think, really has made it an interesting like I just think we have a bigger toolkit to really contextualize a lot of what's happening in this type of story because we've maybe seen more of this kind of thing in our actual lives, not even not our lives, but in the world. And we know how to look for it better because it's, even though the story's not complicated, a lot of what's going on takes some good thinking about to get a handle on it because you're having to rise above what's being talked about for all the hidden motives going on with people. And that's not always easy, I think, for maybe when we first read this book as opposed to now. Like our yeah, ability I think to it's grasp. We've we've spent a lot more time in, in the social world than we did back then. And having spent time in the social world, we've met people that can remind us of the kinds of people that we encounter in this play. Mm-hmm. And not only that, you just you understand people's motives better at this age than I think you I, yeah. I did not understand people's motives nearly the same way I do now. Mm-hmm. I think it's just natural. Ten years ago, I would have been way, way, way more self-involved than I am now. Not to say I'm not still super self-involved, <laughs> but well, that's but the, yeah, yeah, that's the I default mean, that's we're working on. Nature of being that someone mm-hmm. that age is it's it's again a lack of experience makes you think in that kind of David Foster Wallace sort of esque yeah. way. That you are the center of the universe. That is the default. It makes sense. And I also think, not to be underemphasized in all of this, one of the reasons why I feel like the Crucible feels so much more important, again, is that there is the new revolution of social media that allows for everyone to communicate about someone in a way that would have only been like the small town style of communication of the Salem Witch Trials or the power of the communication machine of like the US government during the McCarthy trials. Like those are powerful in their own ways, but the way that now people can pile on on the internet or on Twitter or something like that has made what you notice in the Crucible immediately. My first thought when I started reading about what was going on in the Crucible was like, oh, this is social media. This is yeah. exactly what like social this, media this is, is being right mobbed. now. This is being mobbed and doxxed and having your life ruined and your job taken away because you said the wrong thing and because you're against the orthodoxy, basically, and, without trial. And you can, have, a trial. you can have a few loudmouths bully the majority yes. into doing things they don't want to do because they're afraid to speak out. I mean, and I'm going to bring this analogy up again later, but this story <laughs> essentially is where the emperor is completely naked and there's no little boy there to tell everyone. So everyone goes to the logical conclusion of pretending that the emperor has clothes on when he doesn't. And the end result of that is death and destruction. Literally, people <laughs> because, being murdered. Because no one can speak the truth because of everyone else thinking that everyone else is scared. And unless enough people, unless there's like a threshold of people standing up, 
to the bullies, they get pounded one at a time. Like the bullies have enough time to take people out one at a time kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and well, man, like I know we bring it up a lot, but this whole idea of hard hearted, hard headed, soft hearted, hard headed. Yeah. Where are the defenders of the, I mean, there is Proctor and there's people, but even he, he just doesn't have enough. Oh, it's a, this is such a tragedy because it is the wolves running rampant among the sheep mm-hmm. and, and, and no one to protect oh, them. No one to protect I, them. I was, and the people who are supposed to be the shepherds are the ones killing the sheep. Yep. And by the end of Act 3, I was almost in tears out of anger. <laughs> like yeah, I think- my level of anger in Act 3 of this play, it was so visceral. It felt like it was happening to me. I know. The I, injustice my, my, I felt. My reaction was was one of sorrow. Mm-hmm. Like I just was sitting there being like, "And this happened." Like that's the, not in this ex- these exact details, but mm-hmm. these kind of things have happened all throughout history. Yeah, there were a couple. There were a traumatic. couple major differences in that one of our main characters in this is John Proctor, and he was a real life person in the Salem Witch Trials. But apparently, at the time of the trials, he was about seventy, and for some. Uh, narrative flair he's 35 in the story and one of the girls who is talking about seeing the the witches dance in real life she was about 12 or 13 but in the play she's made to be 17 so that the tryst between her and proctor is less gross <laughs> i guess or less yes. weird yes in that sense and so yeah what we're gonna we're gonna do something a little different today is that instead of going through the characters we're actually going to go through each act of the play David will give you a plot rundown in a second because he just read this book today again. But there are a number of characters that they all play a pretty important role. And so I just want to name them all so that we can kind of have a good context of who they are. So there's Reverend Paris, who's the reverend of the particular town of Salem at the time. His daughter, Betty Paris, their slave, I guess, to Tuba. I don't know if she's their slave, but she's... She their slave, yeah. yes. Abigail, who is <laughs> the true one of the true villains of this story. Um, her friend Susanna. Um, then there's the Putnam couple, Anne Putnam and Thomas Putnam, who are the useful idiots. Um, Mercy Lewis, Mary Warren, two more girls. And then our main character is John Proctor, Rebecca Nurse, who is a friend of Proctor, Giles Corey, another friend of Proctor. Then there's the Reverend John Hale, who plays a super important part because he's a, a witchcraft expert from a different town, and he comes in to give his diagnosis on what's going on. Elizabeth Proctor, who's John's wife. Francis Nurse, who's Rebecca's husband. Ezekiel Cheever, who's one of the court of... He's like Efficients or yeah. whatever. Cheever's um, kind of Cheever the, and the Herrick, bailiff, it seems. Yeah, Cheever and Herrick are like the bailiffs, I yeah. think. Then there's Judge Hawthorne, who's like the more local judge. And then there's the deputy governor of the entire area, Danforth, Sarah Good, and Hopkins. So then we can contextualize them a bit more, but I just like, there's a lot of important characters in a pretty short story. So it's, it's good to get them all in order. So then David, why don't you just give us a little plot rundown? So essentially we are introduced uh, in the middle of what seems to be a crisis in Salem. And the crisis is that uh, Reverend Paris has come upon uh, some girls dancing in the wood. One of them, it seems, may have been naked, but obviously dancing is against the law in this period. So it doesn't matter if she's wearing clothes. doesn't matter if she's wearing clothes. And then he also noticed his servant, the tuba. He notices the tuba kind of chanting some words over a Because she's from Barbados. Boiling. And all this is happening. And then they all realize they're caught by kind of, I guess, the moral authority yeah. of the town, Reverend Paris. 
and they go into shock. So one of them like just completely stops talking, and that's his daughter, and just laying in bed. Like basically, she's not sure how to, as far as I can tell, not sure how to deal with what's happened. So she's acting like something horrible has happened. And this narrative begins to be woven by the girls in the first act of basically that they were kind of tricked, tricked into you know, and then witchcraft had been used on them, and they maybe made some deals with the devil, and there was some. It was it's kind of unclear throughout the whole story exactly how far they'd gone. Because this is how they assume they won't be in trouble is if they admit to being tricked and they were actually with the devil. So so they they confess, but now they're with God, right? So that's our first act. Oh, yeah, and then at the end of the first act, we're introduced to John Proctor, and we discover that there's been some kind of dalliance between him and this main girl, Abigail. Abigail. Yeah, who's and, one of the girls in the woods. And, yes. And the second act, we're, we're introduced to Proctor, who who's trying to be a good man, but he knows that he's kind of... He's really it's at fu- Proctor's house. It's at Proctor's house. He's fucked up in life. He's trying to make his wife, show his wife he loves her, but she's obviously got this hurt and is wounded by the betrayal of her knowledge that he's cheated on her because he confessed it. So there's this... Oh, man. The, and the dialogue in this is like some of the most profound shit you will ever read in your life. And so sincere. Oh, I, So sincere. <laughs> and... Uh, what happens is the bailiffs, show, or at first their servant shows up, who's one of these girls who's been acting this way. She kind of gives this doll to uh, Elizabeth, who's Proctor's wife, or Goody Proctor, and uh, gives the doll to her. Turns out it's part of a setup by Abigail, because Abigail wants Elizabeth Proctor dead. Right, because Cause this Mary Warren girl is John and Elizabeth's servant girl. Yes. I don't think she knows what Abigail is doing, but Abigail no, she knew what she but was Abigail's doing. But Abigail's kind of watching it happen, and yeah. she concocts a plan. And while this is happening, Reverend Hale shows up at the Proctor house to do some questioning of what's been going on there. And then the bailiffs show up to arrest Elizabeth, and then John Proctor kind of loses his mind a little bit, tears up the warrant, she gets arrested... That's the end of Act 2. Act 3 is around the court, basically. John Proctor and others showing up, trying to convince this Danforth character and Hale and others that these girls are lying and that they're, they're causing all this chaos because, they're, because they want things and they're being used by others to steal from people and, and, and literally murder. So, so essentially we have kind of I would argue two different kinds of, of villains in this in this particular play. Mm-hmm. We have the wolves, I'll call them, who are kind of just animalistically attacking, and that's the young girls. They don't seem to have a plan really, except for Abigail. Her only real plan, it appears to be, is to take out Elizabeth so that she could be with just John Proctor guy. And and this is super interesting too. One of the additional wolf esque types. Uh, is I would say Mr. Putnam. No, see, I'm I'm was gonna say he's the second type. Oh well, he's wanting to cash in. Yeah, he's using this chaos and and this evil, well, essentially this accusatory evil mm, okay. to, to make right. personal gains. And I so I, and and then there's the the third kind. So maybe there's three, not two. There's th- the third kind of evil, which is the dogmatic religiosity that 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 cannot bend mm-hmm. in any merciful way. Yeah. Uh, which is the what Danforth? Which is represent. what Danforth represents, and at a point, so do Hale and Paris. But mm-hmm. but they realize the error of their ways. But Danforth never. Oh, does. I gotta say, just as a quick injection here, the fourth act contrition of Hale and Paris is one of the best parts of this story. Yes. I think because they see what they have wrought, 
and they hate it because they know that they've put innocent people to death and they have to live with that on their own souls. The way that that is crafted by Miller in the in their responses, oh, it's beautiful. It's like it is honestly narrative beauty. Yeah, like, like there's a reason this play is so beloved because it, it's incredible. So the third act basically ends with John. Everyone's a witch. <laughs> everyone. Well, yeah. So the yeah, basically, yeah, like everyone's being accused of being a witch. Ninety nine people have signed this thing to someone's innocence, and then Danforth uses that as a way to act, accuse all of them. And essentially, the fourth act is just an incredibly depressing. Because at first you think maybe some people are, are going to be okay. You find out, no, they've already killed 10 people. They're going to kill seven more. And the ones they're killing are, just, are the people who refuse to lie, mm-hmm. which they say confess that they've been involved with the devil and witches and accuse their fellow men and women. And, and we find out that over 100, maybe 120 people in this town have confessed. Yeah, and they've already hung like 12, I they think they say. They've hung 10 and they end up hanging 17, I think. is, is the Right, right, number. that's right. So the play ends with John Proctor essentially saying, I'm going to... I'm going to confess so that I can live so that I because I don't want to die. But then there's this very profound monologue that I'll read later where he says, I, all I have is my name. Yeah. And he, he won't let that be besmirched. And he ends up going to the gallows. Yeah. And, and he dies he at the end. he sees the goodness in, him, in himself mm-hmm. at the end, which is something that we, we can tell throughout the play. He hasn't seen up to that moment. Yeah. And... The intensity of emotion as the reader of this, I mean, I, I, I really want to see this play. Like, I'm going to start looking to see when it comes to Calgary because I really want to see it in action. Because the intensity of emotion, I can't remember the last time I read a book and felt things as strongly as I did reading this one. In Act One, it's intense annoyance. My annoyance with everything that's going on, because it's just, it's total stupidity. And then in Act 2, I'm starting to feel extremely apprehensive. Because yeah, I, see, I see where things are going, and I see it's a kind of inevitable, it's an inevitable injustice coming. And then in Act 3, I am fucking enraged. I want to scream at the book, at the muddled, horrible thinking going on and the abuse of logic is so palpable in act three that i almost started crying when i was reading this out of tears of anger like i said and then in act four because that anger it's so cathartic i think you just you you come you have you come down from that right and it's intended to be this way in act four i'm just so so sad by what's happening you know like the sadness and yet there's a there is a heroicism at the oh end. yeah there's there's definitely that but the sadness in act four for me is that there are all of these people who through dumbassery and injustice are gonna die yep <laughs> and that could be a paradigm of sadness you know because all of the people who die are really the people who show the most character <laughs> in I know. the book Ugh. Like, there's no justice and why the wicked prosper, basically. Yes, good, yeah, good men refuse to do anything. Well, not all good men, but... And uh, the great irony, one of the great ironies of this story, is that the people perpetrating the evils, in one sense, think they're doing it for the right reasons. Along the way, they most of them start to see the error. Basically, every... Uh, <laughs> Here's one of the incomprehensible things for me, too, is that 
everyone responsible for the deaths in this admit that it shouldn't be this way. <laughs> and yet they have to for some reason, <laughs> you know? Well, because they've got, like, well, I think uh, Danforth puts it pretty clearly at the end where he's like, I've already killed 10. Mm-hmm. Like, well, some cost fallacy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. No, I agree. I'm not saying it's good logic. I'm but, like, but that. like, that's amazing because everyone there is like, yeah, we probably shouldn't be doing this, but <laughs> we're too far now, so we got to kill more. Our, our key witness has, has fled. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we should we'll, okay, we yeah, should get into go, the axe because I'll, I'll just get wound up again, and I don't want to do that yet. Anyway, so Act 1, two contextual things that I want to just have out there for the whole play, not just first act. And Miller makes this explicit. On page 7, he, he wrote, in quotations, in Salem, there's been a long hatred of neighbors. So one of the massively important things in this story is all of the hidden incentives that so many people have in Salem to fuck over their neighbors because they feel like they have a grievance against them, but not really. Like it's more of an emotional grievance because it's really hard to prove one way or another. And so what happens is a lot in this story is that these kind of pre-existing grievances that people have for a particular person are kind of ham-fisted into accusations of witchcraft, (laughs) right? Because basically witchcraft, if you are a witch and you are found to be a witch, you lose all of your property. Like you like because only a good Christian can inherit property or send it on. So there's there's actually a lot of financial give and take at stake in this story. And none of it is addressed by any of the authorities in the in the book. And yet it's so obvious to everybody else. And even the people who are accused of it don't deny it <laughs> while it's happening, you know? I'm thinking especially of the Putnam guy he doesn't really even say no that's not why i'm interested in putting you (laughs) on trial for being a witch so that's one really important thing and then another one is contextual to all this is that this is a world where there is witchcraft is a real thing yes and people genuinely believe that it exists and that's really important to understand oh yes it's not like any of the people are insincere even the people who claim to be innocent of it are are saying yeah, witchcraft is real. I'm just not one. <laughs> you know, well, and, and, and Elizabeth has a great line of that in the book too. So those are two super important things to keep in mind as we're going on. So one of the first things I noticed in the beginning of Act One, or in all of Act One, is basically how Abigail is shifting blame. She's she's noticing when potentially blame is coming to her from Paris, and she shifts it to others. She, she did this, she did this, she did this. And I don't know, like you, since you read it today, I think probably because because she's the ignition of all this, you should give a quick little rundown about Abigail herself because she fucking sets this whole thing in she motion. She is kind of the embodiment of everything that I hate about people. She is so myopic. Essentially, how she, why, the reason she's caught is because they're calling down a curse on Proctor's wife so that she'll die. So that Abigail can be with this proctor. Yeah, guy. that's why they're out in the woods that's in the first place. That's why they're place. out in the woods. So, A, she is evil in the sense that she just wants ruin on someone else so that she can get what she wants. Mm-hmm. So she's basically asked Tatuba to use voodoo, because I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Yeah. It's like a voodoo yeah. type Something of thing. Of like that, to put yeah. a curse on John's wife so she will die so that Abigail can be with John. <laughs> and... So she's willing to do that. She was willing to... Now, John is is just as much to blame on this, and he knows it. She is willing to sleep with a man's 
uh, like with a with a, a married woman's, man with a woman's what uh, with a woman's husband in his own home in their own home, and not only that, when she is discovered in doing something she know could get herself in trouble, her immediate her mind immediately goes to who can she damage with this that she doesn't like, and I think the end of the first act is so profound because they start saying I saw blank with the devil i saw blank with the devil and it's this this hysteria has risen where they're 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 yelling the names of the people we know they have these grievances with but she is so much more nefarious than them because she starts this and they they all follow suit it's like immediately this is how we escape and i noticed too what she did which is a hugely important thing to know that this type of person exists in the world and will be like this it's the conniving intuitive i guess you would like damage creator or or people who people who are accusation savvy because the start of the movie is uh what's her name betty betty paris so paris's daughter is lying in bed not comatose but kind of in a trance almost or like can't respond paris assumes it's witchcraft because he caught the girls doing this stuff doing this in the woods and okay. he's terrified because he doesn't want to lose his position in the town. Yeah, of course. Because there's witchcraft in his own home. And, and as we and find it out... it feels like it's been like a little bit tenuous for Paris and the church. And mm-hmm. People haven't really wanted him there. No, and he's... Because, as we also learn later, Paris has been using maybe some of that money for his own personal... Why does the church need these upgrades instead of better sermons kind of thing? Yes, yeah. So what Abigail is noticing is that Paris is starting to float the idea of potential witchcraft or devil sorcery play out there. Okay. So what Abigail does that's so deadly is she gets ahead of it by being the first to accuse, to being the first to know that witchcraft is no, no, a no, it's even worse than hot that. button issue in the town. Being the first to confess. Yeah, confess and then... Exactly. But the confession is also calculated because her confession allows her to be now an authority to point out who else is involved and her authority stems from the fact that i'm the first one to be good after my evil and everyone else hasn't yet so i'm actually the anchor who's going to bring about the goodness now yeah and it's a it's a manipulation of that whole confess your sins and you'll be forgiven thing because of they believe in this thing called witchcraft Mm -hmm. which you know they're really worried about obviously and people are blaming the other thing is People want something to blame their problems on. So we have that one mother who has had nine stillborn children, and she's obviously just miserable. And like anyone who's gone through a miscarriage knows the misery you can feel from that. So I can't imagine them getting all the way to being born and then dying. Mm-hmm. The, 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 like this woman's obviously trying to find a, a rationale in, in, a, in a universe that seems cruel and uncaring, and yet she's told that there's a loving God. What is, the, what is stopping this loving God? What force of evil is per- being perpetrated on the world? And like, yeah, she sounds kind of like a, a little bit of a miserable person, but wouldn't you be miserable if you'd lost nine children like that? It's an interesting little dichotomy there because everything bad that's happening in people's lives is being blamed on the evil one or the devil, right? Yeah, no, I mean, part of the tragic element of this story is how everything hangs on the God-devil existence basically and and the fact that witchcraft is a genuine ontological category (laughs) for these people like to these people in salem witchcraft is as real as hot days (laughs) like it could be a hot day 
There could be a witch in the woods. It's just as vitiating their psychologies as anything, which adds to the tragedy because, uh, yes, to answer your question, of course, if you had nine stillborn kids, that would feel terrible. And you do want, but of course, this never fails to capture my attention and probably not yours either, is that there's no devil directly there to blame. No, but there are other people to blame who, for one reason or another, maybe in other facets of their life or your life, exemplify traits you don't like. And I think even probably then people knew you can't just go hurt someone because you don't like them or you can't fuck them over. You can't upend their property. You can't steal from them just because you don't like them, just because they had a good crop and you didn't. Maybe because they worked harder and you didn't, they have a better outcome. That doesn't work. However, using this other metaphysical category that everyone believes in against them will. Using, so I think it's even deeper than a metaphysical category. Using the evil that the society believes in or the, mm-hmm. or the enemy that the, the society has all agreed exists. Yeah. And saying there's nothing this person worse. is a servant of that enemy. Nothing is worse than the devil and the best human exemplification of the devil in their town is witchcraft. And this goes back to McCarthyanism with, with communism, yep. right? And, and basically the Red Scare and saying, you know, they are a servant of communism. Mm-hmm. Again, how do you prove you're not secretly a communist? Well, this is an important thing to point out, I think. like This is a hugely important social psychological fact, I think, about the human condition to point out, to always be aware of in all your interactions, not just dire ones like Salem, is that... When a person has a grievance against someone that's personal, I think part of them knows they can't just use that to get more people on their side to pile on. So if I didn't like something about you, David, I couldn't just go find 10 people and say, look, David does this thing I don't like. Let's get him. That is like a rank partisanship that is almost impossible to galvanize people because I do think most humans have a general revulsion to hurting others for no reason yeah and and especially people they don't know exactly if you don't if this person doesn't stand to do me any harm and i don't have the grievance you have i can't really rationalize going to hurt that person right but what can do that is make them a threat in an arena where you can hurt me what a lot of the neighbors of salem do and abigail is doing this cynically And I think probably a lot of people are doing it authentically, which is part of the tragedy. But again, there are people that should have been ignored, not (laughs) given a platform, is someone like the Putnams or the people or the lady who lost her nine kids. They feel a grievance against someone. They know that that's not going to work as a tool to get everyone else to mob that person. But if you're a witch, this other thing will. And... Sure, maybe it's not exactly true, and maybe I don't even think you're a witch, but I know that everyone else will get at you if they think you're a witch. And I don't really care if you're a witch or not. I just don't like you, so I'm going to fuck you over and if in I, any if way I, possible. If I, if I come to b- the belief that you truly are a witch, then, then others will find evidence of it because then you have confirmation bias and then so i'll sleep easy at night because i just got a witch whatever exactly i just took out a witch so a modern parallel i think will be people couch a lot of their modern deprecations against others in one political fueled language or another right oh this person is 
alt right. Oh, this person's an SJW. They're like, a commie, yeah. Yeah, the la- the commie from the McCarthy Arrows. Like the labels themselves justify what is, I bet you, often a pre-existing resentment of yeah, a person of for another, yeah. of an individual for another, knowing that resentment isn't going to galvanize a mob, but the accusation of the label will. <laughs> yeah, because and it, but the interesting thing is like calling someone a commie now would not have the mob like affected did during the McCarthy era. No, right? or and calling someone a witch, same thing. But calling someone a bigot, mm-hmm. calling someone a racist, yeah, those things now can just the smears. Yeah, they can they can actually bring about a mob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was an interesting social psychological fact. And again, what real one of the things that pissed me off so much about this book is how the authorities, so Paris and Hale and Danforth and Hawthorne, none of them even considered this option as a reason for people's accusations. I know. Didn't even occur to them. Doesn't occur to them. And once it's brought up, Proctor does bring it up. Once that happens, they're just like, well, that's probably less likely than witchcraft. (laughs) And... Like that level, I can, see what, I can see the pit. You guys can't see it, but the pissed off look at Luke's face like, is wonderful. <laughs> like when that when that basically came out from all of these authority figures in the book, I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> that's that. Pro- that's that, probably it's probably witchcraft. <laughs> that, that's the line. That, that option of human jealousy and resentment seemed less likely than witchcraft. <laughs> Well, and, and that just, that that's dogmatism for you. If, you know, if you're looking for the demon haunted world, right? If, yeah. you're, if you're everywhere, you're looking for, for, you know, if everywhere you're looking for a commie, if everywhere you're looking for a racist, if everywhere you're looking for a witch, but you're going to you, find them. That's what you'll find. And, and you're going to want to find them because, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you want to get those evil things out. Seek and ye shall find. Exactly. <laughs> and to put a nice bow on that thought, Miller in his beautiful prose writes you cannot refuse support to partisans without drawing their deepest resentment a fool felt his foolishness instantly and a proctor is always marked for calumny therefore and so the note i made is you're blaming the thoughtful and the logical for not being on your team so the thing is when the witchcraft stuff starts going out and proctor isn't proctor's the best example of the common sense person in this book but he's not the only example of a common sense person in this book what Proctor starts doing is pointing out basic logical flaws in the story that Abigail's telling and the other girls are telling. All that this is doing in the first act is making the people who want the people to be witches angry at Proctor. So the people like the Putnams and even Paris and Hale. Yeah, pa- Paris in the third act is horrible because he's like, so consumed by it yeah. has to be witchcraft and you're you're undermining the authority <laughs> of the court and all of this shit honestly the difference between paris in the third and fourth act could not be more stark that's true and so in the first act when proctor starts pointing out the flaws of this kind of thinking or, or like well if this is what's just true why did they do this if this is what's true like basically proctor is being a lawyer <laughs> right like he's pointing out flaws and gaps in the girls stories and instead of noticing that those truth things, those like almost things that we would hopefully take for granted now in due process and jurisprudence, the people want there to be witches because they want something to blame. So the fact that Proctor is making it difficult for them, Proctor's making them having to think about their bias and that rubs them the wrong way because no one likes to have to think about their bias. 
Especially and so if ins- you're a, like a partisan. Yeah. And so instead of noticing the truth, they just get mad at Proctor. Yeah. And this is a human. <laughs> this is this is a trough of the human condition. You can never underappreciate the role that resentment can play in defamation. And the way that the Putnams go about defaming, and Paris goes about defaming Proctor, is especially because he is logical and savvy to their games. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And no one in Salem should have been more protected than Proctor because of his sanity. And yet he's the one for calumny. You know, and I just, you know, on like a historical note, when someone like Arthur Miller noticing this kind of like ugly but important thing about the human personality to know, like I just feel so connected to him. Like I wonder how angry he must have been writing this. Yeah. <laughs> and and because Arthur Miller himself had a lot of friends who got like dragged into the McCarthyite. Well, because... Mm-hmm. Artists, professors, people that other people didn't understand or didn't like, they were often being undermined during McCarthyism. Yeah. A great Proctor line here in Act One. I hear you're a sensible man, Hale. I hope you leave some of it in Salem. (laughs) No, you're not going to make any friends, I guess, with that line. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I made this point, but it's important. The people and Hale have what they want to believe confirmed by accusations made out of fear. And there's no common sense except Proctor and Rebecca, which marks them for later. Common sense is not so common which I believe is a Voltarian or maybe Thomas Paine. I can't remember. One of those, one of those guy. And so basically the last part of act one is Abigail caught in the rapturous energy of being on the quote unquote right side and wanting to be part of it. And so one of the things that Abigail does to convince the people around her that she's telling the truth is that she gets more emotional so she gets kind of fire and brimstone and like not only do i confess now i'm so on the god side that i'm actually someone I'm you need to listen the to prophet of god and here's the interesting thing she then presents herself as the only one who actually has insight about who's on the side of the devil and that because she's become this you know seer of mm-hmm. sorts that she is constantly being attacked by those who are supporting the devil. Yeah. Because, of course, they would attack her because she's the one who's exposing them. Like, and it's actually, she's betraying them, basically. It's actually a well-thought-out, like, method in that sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to speak. So to speak. Yeah, it's a strategy. It's a, it's a strategy for, for taking people out. And then, but then, obviously, she becomes so consumed by the power she now has that she even goes and starts to kind of go after Danforth briefly. And, yeah. And I find it so interesting. Yeah, in the third act. That when someone gets accused, when she gets accused of, of maybe being false, her response is the typical response of a guilty person, is to flip it around and throw it back at you. It's almost right? like how kids, it's like, if you catch a kid doing something wrong, they're just like, well, my brother did it first. Yeah. <laughs> you know? or like, it's like, it doesn't even, like, that says or, nothing or, of your or, guilt or, or innocence. No, maybe you're evil, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Immediately, she, she knows her power is to make accusations, so she turns the eye onto the other person and says, well, maybe you're the one. And it shouldn't be surprising, I guess, but the way she was presenting herself at the end of Act 1, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of a cult leader. Yes. Like someone. End of Act Three. No, no, no. Like, uh, well, in Act Three, she's. I think she's being more theatrical. Like, there's, there's, there's more kind of. Well, there, there are different forms of deception. The way that she's behaving in at the end of Act One, it it was like I don't want to say it was like a preacher because 
I don't want to besmirch preachers with this kind of thing, but there is a certain, there's a kind of weird line you discard, and you've been to a lot of sermons, so you know, there's a certain level of emotion that a person in front of a crowd can garner up. Oh yeah, that politicians, gets, good that, politicians yeah, do this That all get time. people going, even if what the person is saying is clearly bullshit. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so Abigail takes it to a degree where it's like, this isn't a preacher, this is like a Jim Jones type of sermon, right? Like this is a kind of David Koresh, Joseph Smith level of making people mix their enthusiasm with their fear to be kind of under her thumb, you know? And I think that that's another super crucial psychological thing to point out is that if there's someone established, like Abigail established herself as someone worth listening to, and she kind of, she's a little bit unsteady, like what's she going to say next? And she's too emotional. We don't really know where she's going. You're off kilter as the audience, but you're kind of fascinated at the same time because what is this person doing? And I feel like that's kind of the spell she put on the crowd in Act One, you know? Did you get that feeling at all? Yeah, I think at Act One, I thought of it more as it was almost as if she'd found a way out. She thought she was screwed. She, she was like a little kid who'd been caught in the act and was like desperately like kind of like looking around in a, in a sense of almost terror because discipline was what was scary. And I think when she finally reaches the end of this, she realizes that she's found the answer to her problem. She's discovered how she's going to avoid discipline and she's going to go full bore into avoiding that discipline. She's not going to take responsibility. In fact, she's figured out a way she doesn't have to take responsibility. And she's projected it now to get other people in trouble. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So then moving into act two, act two takes place at the Proctor house with John and Elizabeth, Mary Warren, who is their servant girl. And they get a visit from uh, Reverend Hale. So he's from a different town, but he's generally considered a specialist in spiritualism. And he considers himself a specialist. Yeah, well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Who wouldn't? And then later, there's also a couple other, like Walcott and Cheever and Herrick, who are bailiffs or muscle of the court, basically, there to keep the peace. So on page 55, Mary Warren, the, the girl is one of the reasons why they think she might be a witch is because she got caught mumbling, (laughs) right? There's just like, so I wrote, mumbling a sign of witchcraft, uh, question mark. This is a clear post hoc. It's it's Mary's accusation for someone else. Sarah being, that's her accusation. Oh, right. Yeah, her accusation. Is that that this homeless woman who would come and beg at the door would mumble. And the way that she gets accused of it is that they say, what were you saying when you were going away from the door when you were mumbling? She says, oh, I was saying the Ten Commandments. And they're like, okay, repeat the Ten Commandments. Ah. And she couldn't remember it. Uh, So Elizabeth, right? Mary's telling that story. Uh, Sarah, I believe. is. Oh, right, right, right. But clear this up for me then. In Act 2, does Mary say she was lying, or does that only happen in Act 3? It only happens in Act 3. Anyway, the point is still that there's a post hoc rationalization for an already desired outcome. And not knowing the commandments is proof. And then I wrote, well, anything can be proof then. Yeah. (laughs) I think that this is an intellectual point to make is that one of the great advantages of, I guess, the modern world, and you might call a more empirically minded worldview or a more enlightenment, I would say, from the European enlightenment style and American enlightenment style of thinking about the world is that you really have to 
make strong criteria for what would count as proof or not for any specific claim. If the claim was, this person doesn't know all the Ten Commandments, not knowing the Ten Commandments is proof. <laughs> yeah. Right? If the claim, if the specific claim is this person is a witch, not knowing the Ten Commandments is a fact about them. Yeah. <laughs> what is the logical connection between the two unless you already want there to be one? Yeah. And so it's not covering for a preconceived bias. Well, it's also confirmation. It's looking for whatever excuse you can make. If once the person's been accused, you want to make sure that, th- that this is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And he makes, or Arthur Miller makes the point in the book. He's like, well, when you're looking for, when you're making accusations of someone that's like something that's invisible, mm-hmm. how are you going to do that? The of only, course. Only the victim <laughs> and the witch would know. Yeah. Because they're the only one. They, there's no evidence. And if one of them is maybe a witch. Like Danforth makes this point, right? He's like, well, how am I supposed to prove this? A lawyer's not going to help anyone because <laughs> all we have is the victim and the perpetrator. Which is essentially the miscarriage of justice. Exactly. But what this specific part about the commandments made me think about is that, holy crap, this is why it's so crucial that I think an Enlightenment style of thinking has, it hasn't changed the way people are. What it's done is it's built in prophylactics against our biases well, as much like, as possible. What they're experiencing there is not the real rule of law. Mm-hmm. They're experiencing the rule of superstition. Yeah. The rule of law, which I think is the foundation of Western civilization, is the innocent until proven guilty. Proven guilty. Mm-hmm. And you can't accusation is not enough evidence is all that counts and and there's kind of trying to do that here mm-hmm. but the evidence they're using is all circumstantial and there's there's no tangible way it's to prove it's a hundred percent testimony yes right there's no there's no physical evidence like you said with that lawyer which is that's such an important thing to keep in mind about because i think it's more emotionally cathartic to just believe people's testimonies or not believe them not to have the messy things like, well, this story doesn't line up with these facts that we know about a situation, so there's reasonable doubt, so we have to investigate further. Like, we're fighting against our psychology <laughs> when we start pointing out holes in something we want. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, the the desire to find a witch is so obviously so important for so many people. The desire for the McCarthyites to find the communists was so important to them. When your identity is wrapped up in an ideology, you need good guys and bad guys. Mm, Of course. And and if you don't have bad guys, it's very hard to keep people in line with your dogma. It's very hard to say, well, well, that's what bad people do. Like, take sports, for example. Like, sports is a really watered down and, and less violent and dogmatic version of this. But, like, if you're a Calgary Flames fan, you really can't love the Oilers. Yeah. Like, it'd be a bit of a heresy be, to would, like yeah, one of their players. You wouldn't be a real Flames fan if you say nice things about the Oilers. You know, you'd just kind of be a, a, a casual hockey fan. Because if mm-hmm. you're a genuine fan, you hate the other team mm-hmm. because that's your tribe. Yeah. Well, and just on that note, I actually think one of the things I'm a thing I'm very proud of is how much less of a partisan sports fan I've become in my life. Like, I still cheer for the teams I like, but the half life of me to get over the Montreal Canadiens losing is it's way, it's like, uh, one minute yeah <laughs> whereas when i was a kid it was like maybe a day <laughs> or like a long time right you know right it, it was sad Quite the hopeful there, thing uh, is that i think it can be overcome at least or at least made conscious and then tempered 
And I would say I, I don't think I'm there with politics, and I think a lot of people don't get there with religion necessarily. And I, I think the reason for that, my argument would be, is because people think the stakes are so high, right? They think, well, I don't just believe this because I believe it. I believe it because I think it's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if I say, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter, then you get in that wishy-washy place of not really believing anything. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is is a big problem because we've talked about this before, but the less wrong approach is the right approach. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do I become more... Uh, aware of my own biases. Well, it's endowed with way more humility. Yeah, it's 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 ingrained humility. Humility is the base of the entire structure because mm-hmm. if you're not willing to say you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You, you, a proud person's not going to sit there and be like, "I'm wrong on this. I'm wrong on well, that." Well, <laughs> imagine in the Crucible if the people who are trying to find the witchcrafts had an attitude of trying to make sure that they got the the thing right. Yeah, what if it was like, well, I probably they're probably not a witch. It would have right? taken Imagine yeah. if that was their default. It would have taken 4 seconds. All Hale would have to say is to Abigail, Abigail, these things that you're saying, tell me about how long have you like ask her questions about her witchcraft. How long have you been a witch? Why did you want to be one? When did you what made you that way? Yeah. Like eventually she's going to trip up because she hasn't thought that long about there's, it. Yeah, there's no cross-examination of the <laughs> no, witness. No. And they're a victim. And there's I no think, cross-examination of the witness because they're a victim. Mm-hmm. But they're still, uh, oh yeah, like that is juicy. <laughs> that is fucking That's juicy. right there. I'm going to try and make this a really positive thing in the sense that like what this made me occur, what this occurred to me in this story is that I think a huge component of intellectual honesty and integrity is knowing what fact or thing that could come out or or logical connection between something that would make your supposition be incorrect. So if someone like Hale could have been like, look, sure, you're saying this person is a witch or that there's witches in this town. I do believe in witches, but... To make sure that we get this right, if I find this piece of evidence or I find this kind of motivation that might make someone like you, Abigail, lie, I'm not going to be gung-ho on this because I'm going to notice these other things that are going on. Or a lawyer in modern day could, like a prosecutor, I mean, obviously lawyers have vested interests, so they're not going to go make the case for the other side, except in Michael Clayton. (laughs) Maybe the most crucial part of intellectual honesty is knowing how you would be wrong. Knowing exactly if it were true, that would make your thesis incorrect. Yes. And... That does not that's, exist at all. I mean, well, that's the scientific in this method, book. right? That's the hi- that's how you take your hypothesis, and then you say, "Okay, let me try to prove my hypothesis wrong." Yeah. That's how and you-, you get points for doing that yeah. <laughs> with other scientists, at least other integral scientists. Yes. I would say this again. I'm going to do a pitch for this. I'm going to do a pitch for this every time until every one of you has read it. Wait, but why the story of us? He details this in a way that is incredible it is insightful it's easy to understand is it a is it a book yet or is it still a no blog? it's it's still a it's a very very long blog with it's got eight chapters now i mean it'll be published hopefully i'm hope it's going to be at a pdf but cannot recommend it more it will completely explain the crucible you will understand why people act the way they do mm-hmm. and so while hale is in the room he holds power over elizabeth and john but he doesn't know them so he has power over people that he doesn't know 
And missing one commandment is enough to indict or at least very deeply make it suspicious that Elizabeth well, is he, a he witch. Uses the right? line, if there's one chink, and it wasn't even Elizabeth that didn't know that. It was, it was Proctor. It was John Proctor. Right, right. That's and, right. And uh, and it was adultery that he'd forgotten. In his uh, yeah, list, which is which funny. Is... The note I made on that, though, is that in this community, there's not and this is a point, this is augmenting the point you made a second ago. There's not a single iota of room for the messiness of life. No. So, because dogma maybe, doesn't allow for that. Yeah. Maybe John knows all the commandments and he just forgot one right now. And so the fact, like a dogma, has no room for the messiness of life is insufferable. That is an insufferable thing for a educated, ethical person to have to live under. Because and, and and this is a super crucial philosophical thing that I rediscovered in reading uh, Adam Gopnik's new book, A Thousand Small Sanities, is that actually the way our brains are is that we forget things. Yeah. And we even forget the things that are the most important to us in a moment or a chain of something. We miss a couple links in the chain and we can't believe we forgot it later on. Like, And I feel like the listener can probably understand a a common sense manifestation of this is like you just blank on a name or like when your mom calls you by your sibling's name yeah it's not that they don't know who you are but it's like our brains do that yeah like i can't believe i forgot that right and multiply that by a thousand million because that's what it is to be a person and the dogma version the dogma segment of this book the sadness of it is that there's no room for the messiness of life. And the only people whose messinesses are interrogated are the people who won't falsely accuse other people. So it's like a double injustice because the only people ravaged in this book are the ones who won't play the dirty game that the resentful people are playing. <laughs> and let's think about the... Because um, maybe I'm not being fair to Hale and... And Paris as much as I should be. In I thought same. Hale was better than Paris. Yeah, but I think I may not be being truly fair to them because, well, no, I think Paris's motives. See, this is the also Arthur Miller is a genius because he gives us different gradients of people's character. He gives us different motivations. But like with Paris, the motivation is obvious, is obviously that he wants more power, that he wants prestige that what he's afraid of is his name being ruined. And that fear is actually, in a sense, what creates Abigail because she's afraid of what he will do if she admits what she's done. Because uh, another important thing we haven't mentioned, Abigail is actually Paris's niece. Yes, and, and living with him. Yeah, like Abigail and Betty are cousins. So Paris is responsible for Abigail. So there's a weird dynamic there too. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so what we see here is... They are like zealots. Paris and Hale are zealots. Now, one of them is a zealot for his own self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And the other is a, is a true believing zealot. Mm. He believes that there is evil in the world and it must be rooted out. Yeah. It's got to be found. Uh, I, got a, I got a quote you're going to like. Have you ever heard of the kind of art philo- uh, philosopher of art? Um, I think his name is George Santayana. No. Anyway, he has a great definition of the zealot. And his definition of the zealot is someone who redoubles their effort the moment they've lost sight of their aims. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and Interesting. I, thought, I thought you would like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that. Yeah. Because that, like, that is the diehard person of a ideology, right? And I actually think that I, like, you, you kind of hinted at this, and it's interesting because Hale's the better one. 
Well, that's only because his motivation is better. But yeah. his his impact is more severe. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, this is a this is a crucial differentiation in the story. I think, I think Paris is motivated much more selfishly. Yes, I think that why Hale's involvement in all of these proceedings is maybe more tragic is that all of it stems from the fact Paris's misdemeanors <laughs> stem from both of his kind of belief in witchcraft and his petty property and money differences with other people and like his selfishness. Hales is almost entirely because he believes in witchcraft. Yes. And so it's just kind of like a but like an but ontological mistake kind of the, the, is the reason yeah, why he's in the banality wrong. of evil here or the the like the like it's this is the Louisian the truly awful dictator is the one who's doing it for the good of the of the citizens. Yeah. Like when Hale going back to the second scene when Hale arrives he seems genuinely sad that he even has to talk to Proctor and Elizabeth about this and he seems exhausted and haggard because he's like I'm going around to all these homes. There's there's witchcraft everywhere. He's overwhelmed by how much. Why the hell you got so many witches in this town? <laughs> He's like the devil is taking hold of this place, right? <laughs> yeah, but he still is in utter and, and full conviction that that this yeah. is happening. Well, okay, so this this moves in really nice to the next John Proctor moment, which I love because he's a voice of reason. So, in a weird way, it's hard not to love Proctor, even though Proctor is someone who had infidelity happening. That's kind of preamble because the whole story, you're just kind of like in love with his strength of mind. And so Hale says something about all of these people who have admitted to being witchcraft or confessed that they are with the devil or whatever. And this is what Proctor says in reply. And why not if they must hang for denying it? There are them that will swear to anything before they hang. Have you ever thought of that? (laughs) And also tangentially, that reminds me also of why torture doesn't work. And there's been studies on this too. Like you torture someone, they're going to say whatever makes the torture stop, not what the truth is. <laughs> like we know how the yeah, nervous not, system works. Su- I mean, you're not going to suddenly get the truth. Well, and I think that this is like a, this is a hugely important finding from, um, I think it was, I can't remember. I think it's Beccaria or Beccaria, the Middle Ages philosopher who was studying torture. And he came to the conclusion that it doesn't work. And it was, it's a kind of, it might be an apocryphal story, but it's kind of a funny story because he discovered it because he was at a castle and they were torturing someone. And the person they were torturing named him as a collaborator. And he knew it was a lie (laughs) because he never met this guy before and was not involved. And the only reason he survived is because the, reigning prince at the castle was a friend of his and he's like well i'm not going to turn you in just because this tortured person said it but it's like well this person clearly lied while they were being tortured while maybe other people are lying when they're being tortured well why would that be and proctor is tapping into the same inquisitive truth-seeking mindset it was like well if the only option for not confessing is being is being hung you're going to confess. You're obviously going to confess. And then <laughs> I love this question because it's a little bit sass. Well, it's super sassy. It's like, have you ever thought of that? <laughs> but but these rhetorical sassy questions are not when the stakes are this high. No. <laughs> right? No. And so I loved that part of Proctor in in that moment. And I loved Elizabeth. So the Elizabeth, his wife, has a line where she's being grilled a bit by Hale about like are you saying there aren't witches like she's this is the first time 
someone in the story is flirting with the idea that maybe this entire endeavor is misguided. <laughs> maybe there aren't witches. And her reply is, if you think I am one, then I say that there are none. And this is on the existence of witches. So I just was so blown away by her self-respect and courage in that moment. Because and Rebecca's too. She and Rebecca mm-hmm, are right? very similar um, character types. One of the things I wanted to talk about in Act 2, before any of this happens, and this is a masterful storytellers weave multiple narratives throughout, throughout their tale. And like a good side quest in exactly, a main game. <laughs> exactly. And the side quest here is this torment and torture that Proctor is going through because of his own guilt and his and his knowledge that he he's sinned but his knowledge of sin is so different than the accusations of the dogmatic his is a personal soul crushing awareness that he has that he has failed and that that failure has harmed those he cares about that his own lack of character and strength has not only been pain to someone he cares about but has actually hurt the relationship he has with that person. That's such a great insight, David, because what that's making me think about now is how all of the bullshit that Proctor knows that is not real, the only reason he and Elizabeth are embroiled in it at all is because of something he did. Yes. Because the only reason their names are even in this at all is because Abigail Abigail hates Elizabeth and wants to be with John, and so that's why they're in all of this, and so their names get dragged in. And so even though Proctor knows this is all just a like a fucking dog and pony smoke show, smoke and mirrors, and he's he's in it because right of what he did exactly, and he and he and he, which is probably doubly <laughs> annoying. Yeah. but well, and he and he kind of like references this a number of times. He's like, "Wow, my sin is is what has has caused so my like, my wife like, and he's basically, I will not let a good woman die." Mm-hmm. Because of my sin, and that's because of my that's sin, yeah. what bothers him. It's not just that she's being accused, and it's, there's this witch hunt going on. It's that sh- his poor decisions mm-hmm. have resulted in negative consequences. There were two last very quick things I wanted to put into Act Two before we move on, because it's important, probably also for Act Three, is that Cheever talks about the evidence is a needle in a poppet, which is an old school world for like a doll. That was also plugged by Abigail. And Mary had the poppet, which was too flimsy to be real. So the evidence that Elizabeth is a witch is the poppet that has been put a needle into, presumably by Elizabeth. Well, and that Abigail Abigail. knew. Yeah, and (laughs) Abigail knew and stabbed herself with a pin. Mm -hmm. So like this is too flimsy to be real. And yet because of the attitudes, this is more evidence for this. And when you see a piece of evidence that's too flimsy to be real and can be seen through in less than a second, and yet people are still captivated by it, you know something else is going on. (laughs) There's a different attachment to this idea that has nothing to do with truth. And then the last one is, on page 74, 76, Herrick, one of the muscle bailiff guys, he's just following orders. And this is injustice shrugged. (laughs) It's the note I made. And also to talk about Jordan Peterson on that, Jordan Peterson has done a lot of work on why the Nazis were able to rise to power and the communists were able to rise to power and Soviet Union do things they do. And it was good people doing nothing. Yes. The individual shrugging off a kind of cosmic moral duty in the face of injustice towards others. And the thing is that this is an easy thing to say. And I actually think this is a really important aside. I have been to Cambodia and obviously Cambodia is a 
fascinating country with so much great history and Angkor Wat being foremost. But obviously in the late 70s, there was genocide that happened there. And I actually visited the the killing, the killing fields near Phnom Penh. And it's such a surreal experience. I have also been to Dachau in Germany, but when you go there, which is a concentration camp, when you, it's a museum, you go there and it's like cold and clinical and you know that death was at this place. But the killing fields are not like that. They're like this beautiful meadow, <laughs> you know? It's like yeah. this beautiful place. So you really have to like absorb the evil that happened there, which was immense, like savage, like people's throats getting cut with tree leaves that are sharp. And there's even... And, and I only tell this part because I think it's important to not lose sight on the true cruelty and horribleness that exists in the world. There was a tree that Cambodian Khmer Rouge soldiers would bash babies' heads on. They would. It was called the killing tree. Yeah. So, like, hard to... And so, okay, individual people need to stand up to this. Yes. There was also a grave for all of the Khmer Rouge soldiers who refused to follow the orders and kill these people or you know what happened to them they got shot they just well they got their heads cut off right bullets were too so it's it's not a saccharine or a sanguine call i think it's takes a lot of courage to be someone a good person who does something yeah because like because you could end up just being taken out mm -hmm. and, and that's like, what happened to and these that's the funny soldiers thing about power i i watch this all the time power makes those beneath it cowardly and they refuse to take stands even po other powerful people they refuse to take stands because they're afraid of losing what they have mm -hmm. and frankly that's the, one of the coolest things about proctor is he's like i'm not letting my my wife go down mm -hmm. for my oh, evil it's, and it's he, amazing it's like it's 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 tear it's it's it makes you kind of tear up because at the end of the day, that's what bravery is. Yeah. But imagine the scenario where Cheever and Herrick and Walcott, I guess, who's the other bailiff type guy. Imagine if, so the three muscle guys see what's going on and they're like, well, no, you know what? I don't think these people are witches. So I'm not going to listen to you when you tell me to grab them by the arm and take them where you want them. Yeah. Like imagine if the muscle in any outfit is thoughtful enough to see through these things. But they're often the soft-headed, hard-hearted people, frankly. Well, I guess I like to think that it's not everybody. No, I don't think it's you know? everybody. But I'm just like, people go into roles, right? Like, you don't get people to go and seize people who are like thoughtful philosophers who are like, you, you send people who will just do what you tell them. I guess so. I, 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 think, I think that those people can be reached too. And it is part of the project of anyone who wants to make the world a better place to reach everybody you know yes, and i yes. and i think that the thing is that herrick feels like he's just like well i'm just following orders well that was that's what the, the nazis, fucking nazis yeah. said <laughs> yeah you know anyone involved in any system needs to be able to think for themselves about what's going on and aspire to that yes hey everybody dave and i just want to take a second to say thank you for listening Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. 
Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. Okay, act three, we descend into hell. Yeah, yeah. Narrative hell. I hated... And we've talked about this a little... Like, we've already talked about this portion a bit, but yeah, let's... Uh, Uh, This is a... We'll start off with a bit of a funny thing. I think you'll like this. This is a line from Proctor. I have no love for Mr. Paris, but God I surely love. And so my line on this is, could there be a better self-proclamation for a Protestant? (laughs) (laughs) What is a more Protestant thing than that? I fucking hate that guy, but I love God. (laughs) Uh, I hate the the powerful person in the church establishment, but I I love God. God. Uh, I did get a bit of a kick out of that, though. Right. Like That is a very Protestant sentiment. It's incredibly Protestant, and, which is hilarious if you consider that these are supposed to be Protestants. Well, but this is what I love. That I do, I think, like in a historical frame, and I mean, you'll probably, you might know more about this than me, but it seems to me like there's more of a rebellious attitude in Protestantism than in Catholicism. Oh, for sure. Well, one's far more hierarchical than the other. But the, the problem with Protestantism has always been that it has no unity. Like, this is the, the the problem as old as time in society. How do you have as much freedom as possible without having anarchy, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and Protestants have always suffered from a form of corporate anarchy in the sense that they're constantly splitting. I mean, there's something like 10,000 denominations of Protestantism, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Where, whereas there are there are many sects of Catholicism. Although that, that, that should church. kind of be the mandate of Protestantism. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> we could go into this. Like if you, if you followed, if you followed what it seems like Protestantism is claiming to want, that is like the logical thing to do. The, <laughs> to keep splintering off into your well, own groups. You, well, yeah, we're actually right about the Bible. We have the proper interpretation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of so we're going the, over here. <laughs> the Church of the of the Third Revelation. <laughs> well, you'll like this too, because you know I love Hitchens, and he's a very famous atheist, or was a famous atheist. But he once said that, you know, he's not a Christian at all. But if he was, he'd be a Protestant, not a Catholic. <laughs> oh, he'd for sure be a Protestant. There's no doubt in my mind. I think we, we'll mention this, but I'll, pa- I'll put it in passing because it's more of of Paris. He takes all further evidence. So when Proctor and someone else, I think it's Francis maybe, or Giles, Corey, brings up evidence against why people might not be witches or why people who accuse them of being witches might have ulterior motives. This is not just untrue. It's actually an attack on the court. So this is not a ground-up take on justice. And since he already has his conclusion in his mind, he just goes ad hominem. And this is a super interesting thing is that I think when you start to see good faith objections to something being labeled as an attack on the sanctity of the institution that's presiding over any given dispute, you know you're in fucking bad water then because that is how injustice can happen. And that's what Paris is showing. Like that was, was so interesting to me. Yeah. He just goes straight to ad hominem because Proctor's like, well, what about I know, this? And what he about keeps this? doing it. And it's ad hominem attacks. So it's like, you know, you plow your field on a Sunday. You, you know, you don't come to church enough. And he's like, well, I built the church. Like mm-hmm. I put the roof on and I 
hung the door. Yeah, and and then Proctor will be thinking like, even if that's true, why would that make me a witch? Yeah, and it's like, well, why are you attacking the court with these yeah. kind of objections? Like, and that's like again, admit to it or not. Again, this is the paranoia of a worldview in which there's an us versus them, right? Is that you're always assuming that your enemy is out there trying to undermine you finding them out and sinking them, right? Mm-hmm. And this is why commun- this is why this is such a perfect analogy to McCarthyism. McCarthyism is because people, even if people deny it, that doesn't actually take away from the. Pa- that's exactly what someone who was a communist spy would do. Yeah, of course they would deny it. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly what a witch would do, or the devil worshiper would do. Why would he, you know, mm-hmm. admit to loving God? Like, so everything else is subservient to that one yeah. idea. So, like the fact that you built the church—that's tangential. Why are you even bringing that up? Like that doesn't because, matter because you've been accused now, and mm-hmm. either you confess, yeah, or you're done. And I think we just have to like actually put a marquee here because this is where we get Danforth. Yeah. And Judge Danforth is. I don't know. I've, I've, I, um, I kind of oscillate between who I hate more in this, Abigail or Danforth. It just depends on my mood, really. Because I actually, like, I should hate Paris, but I think he's so fucking pathetic. Yeah. I think the reason that I actually hate Abigail and Danforth more is that they're way, way smarter. Yes. Than Ab- uh, than Paris. Way smarter. Hale's smarter than Paris. Paris is not a bright individual. He's just a he. He is a a whimpering attempt to to preserve himself. He's like Grima Wormtongue. Yeah, that's a perfect. Yeah, he's he's, he's his power seems entirely baseless. And so the context here is that Danforth is like the senior judge or the deputy governor, and Hawthorne is like the local judge, and both of them are wanting the names of people helping the witches. So it, this is the real like. This is probably the most direct to the McCarthyism witch hunt version of this, which is trying to find all the other names of all the other communists, which is just the people you knew, <laughs> right? Yeah. Here's Danforth's, the first line I made a note of, and this is a quote. No uncorrupted person has Need anything fear. to fear the court. And this is an obvious tautology, which for anyone who doesn't know, a tautology is something that's 100% correct and 100% uninteresting. So it's... Either the candidate will win the election or they won't. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? But it's also begging the question because you assume your conclusion. And this is not innocent until proven guilty mentality. So this is loading the dice from a judicial point of view, right? Because you're saying, well, if you aren't totally 100% on board with the way I'm doing this as the authority figure, there might be something wrong with you, which might mean that you're a corrupted person. So he's basically making himself unfalsifiable (laughs) in this scenario and then his next one is he says ipso facto like you pointed out it's an invisible crime and the heart of the issue is the belief in the invisible things and how they affect people's real physical lives and i just was so i started angry and then i just felt defeated by someone like danforth who it's a hundred percent rule from authority. Like his word is law and all of the points don't matter. And because he is also convinced in a world of witchcraft and well, this is with going back to the way I- to find it or not, he is totally unmovable. 
Yeah, well, this goes anything. back to what I was saying. He's a zealot, but he's he's like a ruling zealot. Like he's a zealot who got the reins of power. And like yeah. he, one of the things he keeps quoting is, you know, I've signed seventy-two death warrants. Like his power is in that he has rooted out evil, right? He's got X number of confessions. He's signed X number of death warrants. His whole worldview is there is evil out there, and I'm hunting it. I'm hunting it down, and I'm killing it. Mm-hmm. And he has no appreciation for the fact that he has this kind of control over people's literal lives. To him, it's unimaginable that it wouldn't be up to him. Yeah. And so you've mixed in this kind of megalomania with a power that can destroy these people. And it made me, I don't know, it just, it so made me think of how how many depressing versions of a legal system have existed in the past? <laughs> and I use legal system in the loosest sense of the term because this is almost certainly what would have been the this case in a lot of places. Good. This is probably good to, to how it used to be. Yeah. Like, because he's like a relatively well-adjusted zealot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's actually got like, there's a semblance of a court and there there's a moment where it could have all ended and pro- this is the, tr- the, the utter... <laughs> sadness that you feel when you're reading this because proctor could have lived if elizabeth wasn't protecting his name i know yeah that's a great little twist is that abigail would have been exposed okay we need to set this up proctor says like he tells danforth the reason why abigail is saying this is because she and i had an affair and she hates my wife and she wants her name dragged through and that's why all this is happening and like, and, and I've and, told my wife this. She knows, and she will tell you. And Dan and and Danforth's like, he believes him. Mm-hmm. And, well, no, he wants to test it because again, his whole worldview is this could be the devil trying to take out my court, right? Which is so fucked up. But that's <laughs> but, his worldview, yeah. right? So what happens? So within is, that paradigm, he's like, well, I gotta protect the, this righteous crusade that I'm on, but I also don't want to destroy the innocent because he knows what happens. The people who destroy the innocent, according to the Bible, right? He even yeah, says it. He's yeah, like, yeah. basically, like, there's a special hell for people who lie, mm-hmm. like a special place of pe- hell for people who lie. And all of this is happening because where Mary Warren is recanting her story, yes. saying, "I didn't so, see so the, the devil. Question, I'm the lying all about there. this." And then basically, Proctor comes in and goes after his own name again, which we know is is very important to him, which we find out in the end. And he says, "Look, I fucked up. Mm-hmm. I did the unforgivable." Yeah. And that's why all of this is happening. This is why Abigail was out in the woods in the first place. Yes. So then Danforth puts this to the test. He says, he asks John, well, will your wife lie? And he says, no, she's a good woman. And John, in Acts 2, John told Elizabeth. And so Elizabeth knows about John's uh, infidelity. And so they invite Elizabeth in. John is said to say nothing. And Danforth asks Elizabeth, did John cheat on you? And she says, no. But she says, no, it's a lie. She knows it's a lie, but she's only doing it to protect John. She doesn't want John to see him that way. She doesn't know that John admitted to it. To and then she says, oh, because he's like, tell the truth. Yeah. I've already confessed. And she's like, oh, God, but it's too late. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> if Danforth, <sighs> okay, Danforth is not going to be like this. Anyone with a brain in that moment would interrogate further. Yes. And be like, hmm. Did you lie to protect him? Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, that option is not even on the table for Danforth because there's like one chance she'll tell the truth. So the fact that she might be covering for him because she still loves him is 
not a relevant all of the all okay all of the actual real human messiness things of the world are totally subservient to the dogma yep again and this is a perfect example of it because well she's told the truth john lied so he's a liar we know and therefore abigail's story is trustworthy again which means there are witches and maybe you're one of them yeah and there we go and it blows my fucking mind that that could anyone with power could be that goddamn stupid like it blows my mind that anyone could be that goddamn stupid, but, but we let know, alone someone who. Uh, yeah, I mean, I th- I don't think it should blow your mind that anyone could be that okay. stupid. I, I it think... doesn't blow my mind; <laughs> it blows my emotions. There you go. That's a way better. Because I'm like Luke, you're smarter than that. Yeah. You know, people have been like that through all of history. I know, Powerful but people are often idiots. But what we can really boil this down to is it is the blinders that being a zealot puts on you that suddenly you're and hunting the necessity down. of a thoroughgoing due process jurisprudence. Yes. That has innocent till proven guilty assumed. No. And that's the breaking point though of this of this tale of woe is as soon as she as Elizabeth lies, again, it's actually the good people's faults that sink them in the end. That's one of the things I love about this story. Or the good people trying to protect other good people. Yes. That sink them. Yeah. It is no good deed. And then we goes got, unhung. and then we got Abigail and all of them in their theatrics. Well, yeah, there's um oh, there was one other interesting philosophical thing I noticed I want to put it. So on page ninety six, Proctor is talking about I think they're talking about the poppet. Like he can't prove that the poppet wasn't in his house and not brought there by Mary later, right? Like he couldn't Paris is saying, prove it's not there. Mm. And Proctor says well, I can't prove there isn't a dragon in my house. No one ever saw it. So maybe it's there. I can't prove it's not. And it's obviously hyperbolic to say, well, you can't prove a negative, right? Like I can't sh- for sure say it's not there. It's just no good reason to think it's there in the first place. And this is an interesting thought experiment by the philosopher Bertrand Russell. It's called Russell's Teapot. And it's Bertrand Russell said, I propose that there is a a teapot that is orbiting the planet Mars right now, and it's so small that it can't be seen, but it's there. Prove me wrong. And what his point was is not that there's a teapot <laughs> circling Mars. It's that it's an impossible starting point. And so, because you can't, because you, you can't prove it wrong. So, what this is supposed to show in philosophy is that the burden of proof is on someone who makes a claim, not someone who refutes it. Right. And the claim. The whole miscarriage of justice of this story is that the burden of proof are on the people who are saying they didn't do something, not on the people who are saying that something did happen. Yes. So the girls in Paris and the Putnams who say there is witchcraft, once they've said it, all of the burden of proof are on the people to say it's not there, which is the same logic as saying there's a dragon in my house. No, there's not. Prove it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or the same logic as saying, there's a teapot orbiting Mars, prove it's not there. You yeah, know, it's yeah. just a, it's a kind of a intellectual orientation of how you would even start to try to figure out a problem. And I loved that Proctor <laughs> paid lip service to that because almost certainly Arthur Miller knew about Bertrand yes. Russell. <laughs> and then Abigail does, and you reference this, oh, that that same attitude is there. The then see no spirits now and prove you can faint (laughs) like to Mary, like prove you can't not like, it's just fucking so stupid. But anyway, this is so crucial. I think this is one of, this might even be a turning point of the story as well, because 
if Danforth had anything in him that might go Proctor's way based on humanity and an attention to logic and justice, it's killed in this moment. And you hinted at this a second ago, so you were prescient. Abigail turns her threats on Danforth and Mary. And so this reminded me of a segment of the story, The Man for All Seasons, because there's a part of that story where I think um, the, Thomas Moore is the guy's name in yeah, that one, right? Thomas and he's talking to like a lawyer or someone. I think he says, you'd break the law to catch the devil, right? And the lawyer says, oh, I'd, I'd cut down all the laws of England if I could catch him. And Thomas Moore says, yes, you would. But what would you do when you caught the devil and he turned to face you? All the laws of England now being cut down to not there to protect you. Yes. And what happens is Danforth realizes that the logic he's using to go after Proctor and others can be very easily turned on him as well. And there's no reason to say he's not going to be. Except there's a, an amazing moment, again, showing Miller's brilliance, where she does that, and mm-hmm. then and then suddenly she's like, "I'm walking away. I'm not going to be a part of this anymore." And he makes the bailiff stop her. He uses the power of the sword to stop her. And there's that great tale in uh, Game of Thrones where it's like, you know, there's there's three men standing. There's a priest, a, a merchant, and a king all standing in a room. And there's a there's a there's a knight, and all all three of them are telling to, them to kill the other two. Mm-hmm. Which one has the most power? It's the one that the knight believes does. <laughs> right yes <laughs> right that's a good point <laughs> yeah that's funny well okay so maybe in the story danforth isn't as scared but he's noticing that no no she, he, he she... sees her doing it and then he says what no you're not doing this to me oh yeah right yeah, yeah. and then and then she's like well then i'm just leaving because i'm not being believed and he has her stopped like she was <laughs> fucked yeah if elizabeth hadn't messed up yeah that's true that's so true and I just think it's important to think about it like this. Once all the laws or all of the standards are cut down, there's no way it won't come for you as well. Yes. And I want to make this point about free speech and liberty because one of my heroes in history is Thomas Paine. And he said, he, uh, this is a great quote from him. He says, he who would want to be free must fight for liberty for his opponent, lest he sets a precedent that will eventually reach his own back. And this is the point of free speech is that you defend it for everyone, even the most vile people in your society, because the moment you start hedging it, you're eventually going to get to the point where it's going to come for you. There's always going to be something you do that is going to be on the outs for someone. Yeah. And if you cut down standards, if you cut corners on people to take them out, there's no cunning that will stop, right? Yeah, when, when it's going to get you. And the whole point of the legal system is so that that can't happen, right? It can't just come for you because you're the next villain yeah. in anybody's mind. And I like, fuck Miller. <laughs> like just hitting all the, ticking all the boxes for how justice crumbles and just becomes mob rule. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. In the end of, so Hale, last couple things of Act 3, Hale, you must see it. He is like exhorting Danforth to see that the girls are lying. Private vengeance is working through this testimony, and now he has to live with his guilt. <laughs> That's what's something so interesting we mentioned, is he has to live with his guilt. 
and it's so obvious the girl all the girls are just going into hysterics like oh i see the devil and it's you and it's you and and they're like they're losing their minds and it's so obvious that they're lying but this place has set a precedence that their testimony is sacrosanct so to point out the emperor is naked is to court death yeah and my last note on Act three is the end of this act is a clusterfuck of stupidity. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Everyone is just absolving their responsibility of being a functioning human <laughs> in, yeah. in this. Yeah. Well, and then and Proctor, the my last note on this act is Proctor says, Well, then I don't believe in God. Which is fair, considering <laughs> if God is okay with this, he'd be okay with anything. Yeah. You know? So then brings us into act four. Since you read it again today, David, I want you to kind of set the feelings of this act Ooh. because it's so you've act just, four is very different for me because emotional come down i think i yeah. agree with what you said about it the earlier. first three are all it's a build like up. building negative but more on the anger side of the negative feeling spectrum like annoyance apprehension anger i feel sadness in act four well yeah you also at, the, at least i do you feel an inkling of hope and then the deepest emotion i feel in act four is admiration Yes, I agree. Uh, totally. And but it's it's deep down, right? It's underneath the sadness because the sadness is profound when you think of the 10 people who've already died. When you think of the hundreds of people who had to lie that they'd been with the devil or seen the devil. Not only the um physical and emotional devastation that's been wreaked on this community, mm-hmm. even worse than that, the psychological damage that has been done to everyone in the community to yeah. know what they've done to each, to each other and what's been forced upon them by these archaic stupid dogmas that everyone's living under and they're and and obeying as <laughs> but if only they have some power. people get to but, interpret yeah, the way they want and obeying as if they have power when if people would just look up from their navel gazing and say no this is stupid if if there were 20 proctors even if there were 100 proctors this would never happen no they, they, they would have been driven out of the, the people trying to like hang these women would have been driven out of the town well and i think there's even an, a part of the epilogue that talks a little bit about how Paris was like shunned after this yeah. and there was like a, there was like a kind of a common sense resurgence that came in but too little too late kind of thing yeah, for those for those poor 17 so yeah so really what happens there's again two different narratives woven in here there's the whole this is the conclusion of the witch hunt and the worst part being of course that Abigail has fled hmm. and so your 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 key witness your yeah. perpetrator of all this wrong isn't even around anymore and yet you're still carrying out the evil that they wrought. That's the bureaucracy of evil. Well, and that that's the bureaucracy yeah. of dogma. Well, and that's a that's a like a beautiful almost little meditation on how the evil can outlive the visionary of the evil. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like it, it often the Soviet does. Union lasted a lot longer than Lenin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the immiseration of the people therein lasted you know, a lot like, longer than Lenin. Or the 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 rot of socialism in Argentina that is that has caused so much pain and like as it was the Paris it was the Paris of the West. Yeah. In the 1920s. It, the, their economy was the same size as Canada and now they're rotting and they've been rotting for like 70 years. Mm. And we'll get get into that another time. <laughs> but my point is yeah, like the vision the evil can last a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, than the visionary. For anyone who doesn't know that the emperor has no clothes fable is no one wants to tell the emperor that his brand new clothes made for him are a scam and he's just naked, except one little boy points it out. And then once the little boy points it out, everyone knows. 
and it's beautiful. The reason that this evil persists is that anyone who points out that the emperor is naked, or in this case, that maybe all of these really upstanding citizens of our town aren't witches and they're just being targeted by other motives of lesser people, they are also now witches. So it's it's like a perfect con. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's every angle of it is so well articulated. And so one of the things that I thought was really interesting in Danforth's reasoning in Act Four about why he couldn't let Proctor go without Proctor confessing is that I don't even think Danforth thinks Proctor is a witch. <laughs> No, you know, like no. there's no way. It's but the he people says, will not. But Danforth says, I can't pardon you or it will look bad for the other 12 hangings, which I mentioned earlier is a sunk. It's the sunk cost fallacy, the psychological fallacy of if I've put this much money into something, I have to see it through, even though it's clearly not working because otherwise I have no meaning. I've just done something bad and that's it. And that it's sucks. This, and it's actually the same problem that faced Abigail. Mm-hmm. But you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the Vietnam War. Right. It reminded me of um, McNamara talking about how, fuck, we can't win this. But we've put so much money and people and deaths already. We can't just pull out. Because that looks terrible. Because that looks terrible. And for anyone who hasn't, I couldn't recommend more the documentary by... Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, I think her name is. It's like a 18 or 20 hour documentary on the Vietnam War. And one of the major things that comes out of that, at least from the way it's presented in that, and I, they, they're pretty thorough, is how early the U.S. government knew they couldn't win. <laughs> yeah. And still kept sending people there because... It was you, a war of ideology. It's a war of ideology and also... It's not a good winning strategy for re-election to yeah, to, to tell lose, yeah. to tell all of the thousands and hundreds of th- tens of thousands of families across America, your son died in a war we knew we couldn't win, yeah. but we kept doing it because yeah. we didn't want people to think it it's, wasn't it's, worth. You're it. right. It's that's a really okay. So <laughs> I, this is perfect. And actually, like a lot of people, are like oh, the hippies that protested the Vietnam War, but they had a really legitimate reason for protesting that war. Yeah, and. A lot of veterans protested it when they came back. Yeah. And that's actually kind of an interesting... Like, that's when the protest got taken a little more seriously. Because it's like, wait a second. Because people yeah. on TV is like, whatever, these fucking hippies. <laughs> but when people who actually fought there come back and say, this is horse shit, why are we there? You have to take them a little more seriously because they put their money where their mouth was, right? Yeah. So, my favorite poet is W.H. Uh, Auden. And my favorite poem is uh, spring 1930, or September 1939. September 31st or 1st. 1939 but this is the line from it that i think is the antidote to the salem witch trials to the mccarthy to ev- to all of this mm-hmm. and and it's what i try to live my life by even when it's really hard even when it means taking a stand against everything and having people like come after you and, it, and it's this all i have is a voice to undo the folded lie the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky there is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. Mm-hmm. And what better encapsulation of the Salem witch trials than we must love one another 
or die. The romantic lie in the brain of authority. Danforth is the romantic lie in the brain of authority. He is so wrapped up in his own authority of of, uh, and hunting down these evildoers, and all someone has to do is have the voice Mm -hmm. to unfold the lie. Yeah, the lie of authority, and it is a lie. Oh God, that's a great point, David, and that's a great poem. I hope that resonates for listeners because it definitely makes a lot of sense in this context. So I think we have some really great final thoughts to give on this, but I wanted to point out one, two, two or three more things on Act 4. One of them is this Giles character, and he uh, didn't confess to being a witch. He just didn't say anything because he knew that if he confessed oh, to being I a love witch, this or he, he, he couldn't... He couldn't couldn't either say he was or wasn't a witch. Yeah, because if he says he was, he forfeits his, well, he forfeits his soul, basically. If you say he wasn't, then he's lying or he's contradicting testimony. So, but the thing is, if you're a witch, you forfeit your property. And so his, he wanted to give his property to his sons. So what he did was that he was, and they were pressuring him to confess and they were doing it by piling rocks on him until he was crushed to death. So he chose his own death to die as someone who could basically give his farm instead of to the fucking Putnams. Which These who were the only goddamn useful the idiots <laughs> who are just conniving and are the ones who probably should have had the stones on them. But yes, yes. I'll, not really, but that's the way I feel. <laughs> but Giles doesn't do this and he keeps his integrity to his death, which is also a good lead in to Proctor because if Proctor stays to his principle, he will die. And then you said he wanted to confess, but then he wanted to keep his name. But this was the line that stuck out to me because if Proctor confesses that he's a witch, it's a lie. He's lying to save his life. And he says that to them. But then he says, it is hard to give a lie to dogs. So what he's saying, he's calling Hale and Danforth and Paris dogs. You three people who have authority on me, you are the dogs. And I am the man. And the fact that you get to have power over my life is the apex of injustice yes. in this story. Yes. I also like the put more more weight. Yes. Like where he's just like, oh, Giles, yeah. you guys. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, put yeah. more weight on then. You have a part you want to read about Proctor? Yeah. So like I, how he, I, so we he talk, doesn't confess. We talked about the authority and stuff. We talked about the larger things. But let's think yeah. about what is the redemption for Proctor in this story. And mm-hmm. what is the like the last thing that Elizabeth says about him too? Mm-hmm. There's that moment where he he decides to go to his death. Yeah. And people are like, why why won't you why won't you and literally Danforth says, then explain to me, Mr. Proctor, why you will not let and Proctor. Because it's my name. Because I cannot have another in my life. Because I lie and sign myself to lies. Because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them that hang. How can I live without my name? I've given you my soul. Leave my name. <laughs> yeah. He had to sign an official document, not just admit. Yeah. Right? He want, and they wanted to broadcast his lie, which they he caught a big a lie. fish. They, yeah. caught a, they caught the Proctor Because everyone fish. really thought Proctor was noble, right? And that he hadn't caved yet. And so he wasn't going to let he was the, the dogs use his name for their own cause. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And like that is fucking noble as fuck, hey? <laughs> yeah, that, that's the moment where you're like, 
and then and then his wife says when when Hale's like go save his life because you know we don't want him to die and she says he has his goodness now god forbid i take it from him yeah john and elizabeth are so fucking awesome in this hey they are the heroes for sure yeah well and and Rebecca, and too. that's the underlying narrative of this story from the micro level of the of the individual, is guilt and shame, and feeling of the feeling of evil on your soul encroaching on your very love for yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't ha- feel like you have any goodness in you, and like and then for Proctor to say, "I think I've found the goodness in me," mm-hmm. and it's dying this way. Well, you know, I love that you. I, I'm so glad that this part resonated both with so much with both of us because you know who this death scene do you know what it reminded me of is the death scene of socrates yes because socrates was judged and convicted by people who were unbelievably inferior to him in integrity and quality of character and he was given the option not by like in the crucible, the option to proctor is given by the people who convicted him because they're they don't want that. But in in I think it's the Phaedo, I can't remember the last the very or maybe the Crito, the very last dialogue. So the second last one is the apology where uh, Socrates gives the reason why he shouldn't be put to death, but the people of Athens still or the magistrates still choose to. And then when Socrates is in jail, his friends offer him an escape, and he says. Well, no, because if I do that, then the people can say he's guilty. Look, he ran. <laughs> and if this is the judgment of the laws of the people I've lived with, I will take it. And they have to swallow the fact that they, they killed me. This, yeah. yeah. And now the guy who said Socrates had to die or who gave the judgment, his name was Miletus. Well, now Miletus is an asshole of history. Right yeah. now, Danforth and Hale and Paris are assholes of history. These are the fucking people who made the mistake that everyone can learn from and point at them and be like, "Hey, you were a dog, yeah, and you killed an angel, basically." You killed and, a, yeah, you killed a saint. Even yeah. like how, how um, Proctor says it about Rebecca. Do you, who do you want to be? Do you want to be Socrates or do you want to be Miletus? Do you want to be the person who enlightens people or do you want to people be the person who? puts that person to death because they're or dangerous destroys that person the youth. Yeah. do you want to be proctor who doesn't just sell out all the other people who hung to save his own life or do you want to be danforth who's too fucking scared to be a man and point out that he's wrong you know this choice is on every, any given person on any given day i guess yeah and so that's that's the story of the crucible and the crucible it's such a great name because the crucible is like obviously where something is forged and made stronger you know and i i just think that the way that we are able to think about these descents into evil are made so much stronger because of this play yes right because it's so articulated so well what why is this a piece of art it's a piece of art because it reminds us of the darkness in all of us but it shows us how bad that darkness yeah. can get and i just it, there couldn't be a better title for it no i think cuz <laughs> yeah. cuz you're really putting people up against the wall to their edges and seeing what they'll do in this and i i wanted to also take a couple minutes to throw some musings on I guess probably the two major themes of this book are motivated reasoning and psychology. People saying one thing, but really being motivated by something else. 
but also the law. And one of the major things I got from reading this again is that an accusation is not a conviction. And the inability to see between those two things is going to lead to chaos and destruction. Well, I think it leads to something more dangerous than that. (laughs) More dangerous than chaos and destruction? Yeah, it leads to tribes. Right, yeah. And what happens when you have tribes? One tribe's going to wipe the other tribe Well, then it's just partisanship. Yeah. Again. And so um, my feeling on all of this is that you have to take accusations seriously but you can't you can't convict someone on an accusation and i know it's like that is battling our psychology a bit because once you hear like if someone gets accused of something really heinous your emotions want to hold that against them right like you want to i think our brains are primed for good guys and bad guys in the yeah. world you yeah, know and you want sure. you want villains you want the terrible people you want the predators because you can point at them and be like, I'm not them. No matter at least what I do, I'm not them. Yeah. And one of the crown jewels of our culture is the is the institutionalization of the attitude of no wait. We have to find out the truth we to the best be, of yeah, our ability. We want to be less wrong. Because we need to because the consequence of what we're gonna do to this person who's accused of this thing is so huge that we need to get this right, which means we need to have an exhaustive investigation. We need to have due process. We need to weigh evidence. We need to be sure beyond a reasonable doubt that this person actually did the things that they are being accused of doing before we convict them because revenge revenge and resentment are too... I would say at this stage, revenge and resentment are way too comprehensible of human motivations for us to just believe (laughs) that temperament and it's not that you don't it's you take accusations seriously but you don't axiomatically believe them as sacrosanct truth like they do in the crucible because that leads to all of the chaos and death and destruction and i think while i'm on the soapbox (laughs) a useful heuristic for the modern world social media especially is to figure out how to not, A, for sure, not pile on an accusation or a mob, and to be mindful of evidence and to make sure that that is a priority over a cathartic, oh, this person's bad and I'm going to point that out. The human brain is way too easily tempted into the blame game. And just like the laws of England being cut down, it's eventually going to come for you if you don't stand up for the principles of it having to be due process and like a trial, <laughs> but like a real trial with lawyers, yeah. not just <laughs> testimony. Yeah. yeah. Here's what I mean about this, to put a bow on it. I think we've become too entitled and taken for granted the fact that if someone with more power than us doesn't like us they can't just drag us out of our home into a mob and say pitchfork them yeah like that is a huge game that's kind of happening now i know different way well that's what i'm saying it's useful to notice that and be able to have a defense against it and i want to i want to make a further point on that the only way 
that you can convince mobs to do things like this is if mobs believe one thing's right and one thing's wrong. If they believe there's bad guys out there and we need to hunt them down and we need to destroy them because they're evil. And so if you believe in a worldview that divides the world into the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, and that there's truly just these evil people lurking around that you need to destroy... I think you need to ask. You'll find them. You'll find them. You'll find them wherever they... And they might not be real or they might be real, but you'll find them. And I think, just to reiterate what you're saying, it's very important to have due process because if you're in a mob and you're one of those people who's doing that, you can be used by other people to get what they want. Mm. Don't be a useful idiot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I um, I just think... With social media, especially the the piling on effect and the ability to make accusations that you don't need actual evidence for, maybe if you just give an eloquent diatribe. Like I think as we become a more educated populace in the world, we need to start resisting those urges. Yeah. And being more thoroughgoing. And see, the thing is, it doesn't mean that guilty people won't be found out. That is what evidence is for. It means that we are setting standards that we would want applied to ourselves if the spotlight was on us and the pitchforks were aimed at us. You know? Like, I think it's that fucking simple. Yes. Yes. I know we talked about it a bunch. I won't linger on it. But the psychological resentment, one of the great insights from George Orwell. And George Orwell is no... He doesn't lack any insights. No, and he's no phony when it comes to socialism. Like he was a man of the left. That was his that was his MO. And one of his great insights, I think it was in Road to Wigan Pier, was that the socialists he knew didn't love the poor. They just hated the rich. They were the people who were wanting to just be motivated by resentment in one form or another. And so then this is a like George Orwell went to the coal mines he walked in the coal mines like this is a guy who actually he 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 wasn't just an academic (laughs) in all of this stuff like he went to where the working class were and tried to feel their pain and he and he went to the spanish civil war and fought against franco like this is a guy who put his money where his left wing thought political thoughts yeah he went to spain and (laughs) fought the fascists literally so this is a guy who is not a faker and when he Notice that, to me, the great impoverishment of any political ideology is that the, the the political mindset thinks that the world ends at the political, where I'm saying, no, it ends at the psychological. And the resentment motivator needs to always be taken into account for any, any accusation. Yeah. <laughs> like, that needs to be something so aware of. And I, I would say that we're way better at that now than we would have been in the Crucible times sure. or the for Salem sure. Whip trials. But, but because we're not fundamentally a different species and then it can always come back yeah so the, the guard the guard against. against that that's why the crucible is such an important perennial reminder and then i just wanted to leave on this story uh, i think it's from 2012 it's another cambodian story i read and it was a story about it was in a like a village in in uh rural cambodia and a guy was mo- killed by a mob in cambodia and his crime was sorcery because the crops of the of the other village weren't doing so well. So they knew that this guy was a sorcerer and that it was his fault. And so they went and they killed him. And 
this is a bit tongue-in-cheek but not but it's like well what's stupid about that everything (laughs) everything is stupid about that and why because we know how meteorology works we know soil rotation and we understand the science of farming that's why crops fail not because someone put a hex on it and the constant pursuit to get a little bit more aware of the water we're swimming in and why it doesn't make sense is a human necessity (laughs) i think so that we we don't live in our own bubbles of whatever witchcraft is today for people yeah what is the sacred thing that definitely exists that we can't see and i will not speculate right now on what i think that is but i think it's a useful thing to think about what are the what are the taken for granteds of the world now that we can't see but everyone seems to guide their behavior and maybe they're not exactly 100 percent true i think that's a useful i think that's a useful way thing to for think everyone to think about yeah anyway david any other thoughts on the crucible this beautiful and heart-wrenching book okay so this might be this is more maybe a personal thought but I think as much as all of this is true, there may there may come a day when you do have to fight someone who's evil and you do have to, to, to root them out <laughs> and get them away. Uh, and how to determine that needs to be done in the way that we describe. Ask yourself, why am I doing this? Is it out of resentment? Is it out of fear? Is it out of jealousy? Is it out of, what are my motivations? I think... The most important thing any person can ever do is know their own motivations. Absolutely. And also know that you're probably lying to yourself a little bit. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, it's almost useful to figure out ways that you can subvert your own lies. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like put mechanisms in place to hold you accountable to your own motivations, even when you don't want to be. Exactly. And so I I guess I would leave it at the only way you're going to know whether you're on a witch hunt or you're on a righteous crusade of sorts, is to uh, to know your motivations. Mm-hmm. And once you know your own, start seeing the signs in others too. Exactly. And pointing it out. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I, Of all of the things we've done so far, of all of the stories, this is the first one where I implore listeners to read it. Yeah, you because gotta, or, and, or go to it. I'm sure yeah, it's amazing, yeah. amazing. This, um, I, like we pointed out at the start, all of the other stories we've done so far, we love. This one, I think, is a necessity for people because it's uh, explicitly a moral warning. And it's so salient to our time. Yeah. It's a human perennial and it, it'll come back forever. So it's always important to be up on the things about it that are so dangerous. So anyway. It's been another episode of Really True Fiction. I'm Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. And uh, please read The Crucible. It is so, so good. Thanks for listening, guys.